Good morning, everyone. I'm reading a very long passage this morning, Acts chapter 4, 1 through 31. As Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, the entire power structure of Israel, were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this, this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He... Christ is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to everyone in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, Peter and John went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the Holy Spirit gives us boldness. I pray for Tom as he speaks, that we will in turn be bold to speak your name in our marketplace, in our list of friends and companions and neighbors. We pray, Lord, in your name, amen. Good morning. When my brother Bob preached this, this uh, series in Acts a number of year go, years ago when he got to this passage, he said, this is a fun passage to preach. <laughs> I have to agree with that. Um, as I pondered this week the importance of, uh, of this amazing passage for this present generation of Christ's church, uh, two words kept coming into my mind, and they were the words, no compromise. In this passage, Peter and John, as, as John, remember that John Marr mentioned, found themselves uh, standing before the same Jewish court that only weeks earlier had, uh, had demanded and obtained the execution, the public crucifixion of the Lord of glory at the hands of godless men. And this, by the way, is the same Peter who only weeks earlier had sworn in his own name that no matter what anyone else did, he would never abandon Jesus. And then that very night after saying those words, he denied Jesus three times with curses to protect himself while his master was being carried away in bonds to be mocked and, and tortured and crucified in his place and in the place of sinners everywhere. By every worldly expectation, uh, if there was ever a time for Peter to believe that compromise was necessary, it would be in the events that we're about to see in chapter 4 of Acts as he stood before that same court that had condemned Jesus to die. But there is no compromise found here, none whatsoever, from Peter or from John or from anyone else who was part of the spiritual household of God, the brand new church of Jesus Christ. There's another two-word phrase that I believe glues the events in this passage together with powerful effect, and it is the phrase gathered together, gathered together. It comes from one Greek word. Shows up four times in the passage, verse 5, verse 26, 27, and 31. 
The first three times we see it, it refers to the gathering together of powerful men who exercise great influence over the well-being of the Jewish people, as well-being is measured uh, in human terms. But the power that they possess on earth means absolutely nothing to God, and as we'll see very soon, it turns out that it means absolutely nothing to the people of God. That first group that gathers together claim claims that they gather in the name of the one true God, but in reality, it is in their own name that they gather and that they do all that they do. Uh, it is their name that they, they very devoutly seek to exalt and no other. The fourth time that the phrase gathered together shows up in this passage in verse 27, it refers to a group of people who have excuse me, in verse 31, it, it refers to a group of people who, uh, who have no power as the world measures power, people who are entirely satisfied to determine nobody's well-being, either in the earthly realm or in the heavenly realm, precisely because the one and only name that they consider worthy of all of their attention, affection, and submission is the name of Jesus Christ. That distinction between two very different gatherings and two very different names uh, really drives to the very core of what Luke sets before us in this magnificent chapter. As chapter 4 begins, one gathering is suddenly and forcefully inter interrupted in order to bring about another one, right? God had just miraculously healed a 40-year-old man who had been lame from birth, a man who had been known to everyone in Jerusalem who ever came into or out of the temple compound or even came around the temple compound over a period spanning not just years but decades. This man had been placed in the exact same spot for decades every day outside the temple compound. Immediately after the miraculous healing of this lame man that we saw in chapter 3, Peter and John had proceeded into the temple compound, followed by the man who had just been healed, and by many others who had witnessed this great miracle. Once they were inside the compound at the portico of Solomon, Peter preached his second sermon in which he forcefully indicted his own Jewish brethren for executing their own Messiah. Peter had called them to repent and turn to God, trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and for the restoration of all things that had been promised through their prophets throughout the Old Testament. Now, as chapter 4 begins, Luke tells us that the captain of the temple guard, together with men from the influential branch of Judaism known as the Sadducees, break up that gathering of the saints in the temple grounds, and they order the arrest of Peter and John. Now, initially, these Jewish authorities seem uh, not to have very much knowledge of who these men are, um, other than that they had caused some kind of disturbance in the temple by healing a lame man, and that they were, quote, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's late in the day when they 
when they lay hold of John and Peter. So rather than hold court that same evening, uh, these rulers have Peter and John tossed into jail to wait for their trial before the court the following morning. Now, like, uh, as my, my brother John Marr mentioned this, but like many who call themselves people of God in our day, the Sadducees were what we would call anti-supernaturalists. They rejected any notion of the existence of things like angels, miracles, or the promise of a future bodily resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in all of those things. But it was the Sadducees who had achieved the place of greatest prominence and power and influence in the Jewish religious establishment. It was from their ranks, the ranks of the Sadducees, that the high priest was designated. Um, the high priests were from, in Jesus' era, were from just a few power, very powerful Sadducee families. Here in Acts, four brothers from the same high priestly family of the Sadducees, Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander are all in attendance when the high court is convened. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish high court that met at the temple when important matters affecting the Jewish community were at issue or when there was a trial to be conducted according to Jewish law. The members of the Sanhedrin included both Sadducees and Pharisees, but again, the Sadducees were the most powerful of the lot. When court was in session, the members of the court sat in, a concentric, in, in concentric semicircles. Okay, so there was more than one row of, of these leaders seated in a large semicircle. And at the focal point of that semicircle, that's where the defendant was placed. Now, if you were, uh, if you were the defendant, that was a pretty intimidating physical layout. It was meant to be. These men made very sure that anyone who was, who was in the position of being a defendant in that court knew who was calling the shots. And whatever the verdict was that was issued in the name of this powerful court was considered to be set in stone, unchallengeable. And friends, if there was one thing that nobody in that Jewish high court or in all of Jewish society in that day would ever have expected to happen when that court was in session, it was that the defendant would make accusations against the court. And that's exactly what happened here in chapter 4. Verse 5 of Acts 4 brings us to the day of the court proceeding. It appears that the man who had been healed and, uh, and was, had been with John and Peter was also arrested with them because he's standing there in the position of the defendants in the court, right alongside them. That's no big surprise, because he had been, you know, walking and leaping and praising God and clinging to John and Peter. These three men, perhaps some others who had been with them, are now brought before the high court. Verse 7 says, when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, before we go any further, we need to understand what that, the second part of that question means. The, by what power is pretty straightforward, but in what name? What does that mean? Every Jew would understand the significance of that question. 
The name of a person throughout the Old Testament was shorthand for referring to that which is most essentially true of that person, the person's character, the person's ways, uh, and, and as was most pertinent here, the, the authority that accrued to that person because of who the person was. It was the authority part of that paradigm that was at the heart of the question posed by the court to Peter and John. When they said, in what name have you done this, they really meant by what authority. They knew they had not authorized these men to speak or to heal in the temple. So what other person could possibly have the gravitas, the, the lofty and weighty character and significance to grant these men such authority? Well, Peter's answer was more than they bargained for. The first thing we must not miss about Peter's answer is how Luke prefaces it. He says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. As we mentioned in the first message of this series, the entire book of Acts is really about the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Everything that we've seen this far has been the activity of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and in the newborn church of Jesus Christ. Now, by the filling of the Holy Spirit, which as we mentioned first, means the, the, the Spirit has taken control. When someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, it means the Spirit is, is, is working doing his work in and through that person, not as an automaton. The person is not checked out and, you know, the Spirit's channeling through the person. The person is, is a willing and yielded instrument of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit again. He's emboldened and he's equipped to speak words of extraordinary power and unparalleled authority the likes of which this court has never beheld to the very men who had demanded the crucifixion of Jesus so very recently before. Peter's words, as I mentioned, are absolutely without compromise of any kind. He pulls no punches. He demonstrates no fear. He makes no concession at all to the worldly power and authority of this group of men whom no one else dared to challenge. Peter begins by acknowledging who it is that he's addressing, rulers and elders of the people. That ends up being more of an insult than anything as he proceeds. He then zeroes in on the matter that supposedly prompted this special session of the Sanhedrin. He says, if we were on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, and I'll point out that the word translated made well is the Greek word for saved. Sozo, it's the word for saved. How this man has been saved. Now, the word itself can have a, quite a range of meanings. It can refer to all manner of different kinds of tempor temporal deliverances, okay, including healing. It can also refer to eternal life. In this case, I am absolutely convinced it refers to both. On the day that this man was healed, he was also redeemed. And he was praising God for what God had done in his life in the name of Jesus. 
Now think about what had just happened the day before this court had been called into session. There had been no violation of the Sabbath because it wasn't the Sabbath day. Nobody had been harmed. There had been no riot. There had been no actual interruption of the hour of prayer at the temple. I'm quite certain that Peter waited until the time of prayer was done before he began his sermon. There was no political unrest. A man had been healed from a crippling ailment that had afflicted him for 40 years. What could possibly be bad about that? Yet the Jewish religious leaders found it necessary to throw the men through whom that healing had occurred into jail and to bring them then before a special session of the highest court of the Jews in all of the Roman Empire. Peter, of course, knew very well what had actually precipitated this special session of the Sanhedrin, and he knew that it was not the fact that a man had been made well. It was that a different name had been exalted than the name to which this high court was zealously and exclusively devoted. And Peter knew that they would not allow that to stand. Peter said to them, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you here in good health. Peter makes it very clear that what he's about to say applies to all the men assembled in that big half circle in the highest court in all of Judaism, and not just to them, but to everyone in the world that they consider to be under their authority. Wow. And note that Peter does not say, consider this. He doesn't say, see what you think about this. He says, know this. Beloved, when you and I tell other people about the witness of God the Father to God the Son in and through the prophets and apostles and in the person of Jesus himself, there is no place for words like, consider whether this might be true. You and I are not here on earth to tell people to try Jesus. God has left us here with the commission, the same commission he gave to the disciples, to speak the word of the cross in the name and by the authority, by the authority of Jesus Christ. Our message to the world is God has spoken, he has left no guesswork, and he commands you, to hear and believe his word concerning his son. If that's not what we're saying to the world, we're not speaking with the authority that God has entrusted to us. I hear a whole lot in this generation about speaking truth to power. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Speaking truth to power. Peter makes it crystal clear here at the outset of his response to these men that he is speaking truth with a capital T, to power with a really small lowercase p. And he's just warming up. Peter says to the high court, in effect, you ask by what power or in what name we are healing and teaching? Here's your answer. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
By this name, this man stands before you in good health. Any questions? In each of his first three sermons, Peter declared that Jesus of Nazareth, the man whose crucifixion these same men had demanded, was the very one in whose name he now spoke and acted in every case. Peter said, it is in his name that this man now stands before you perfectly well. In the previous, previous chapter, he said, perfect health. This guy was in way better health than I am. I expect that at this point, Peter gestured toward the man whom every one of these wealthy and comfortable and powerful men had passed by countless hundreds of times on their way into and out of the temple to do the things that they were supposed to do. But the lame man is no longer lame. He's standing right in front of them. Probably with much better posture than I've got. Stand up. Peter then does what he had done in both of his preceding sermons in Acts. He goes to the Old Testament scriptures to add the long-standing witness of God to the case he's making for Christ. Now, that is a step, as I've mentioned before, that we almost always leave out of our gospel presentations. But it shows up over and over and over and over in the New Testament. And it's amazing that when the Apostle Paul lays out for us, here's the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, the one, you know, that we preached and that by which you were saved. What does he say about that gospel, about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus? He says, it is according to the scriptures. And he means the Old Testament scriptures. That's supposed to be part of our proclamation. But Peter's citation from the Old Testament here goes a step beyond testifying to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-promised Christ. It also testifies to the guilt of these very men for their rejection of Jesus. Peter directly applies Psalm 118 to the men before whom he is standing. He says, he, Jesus of Nazareth, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders but which became the chief cornerstone. These men knew exactly what Peter was saying. He's saying that God prophesied that the rulers and leaders of the Jews in the day that Messiah, the promised Messiah, came, in other words, these very men, would be the ones directly responsible for executing that Messiah whom God had faithfully foretold by the mouths of their own prophets throughout all the generations of their existence and all the generations of mankind. Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah. He came to them and they killed him, just like the prophets said they would do. I don't know how you could present a more, a more piercing indictment against a group of people than Peter does right here. God raised him from the dead, Jesus from the dead, and the one who had done all of those countless miracles that the people in Galilee and Judea and even Jerusalem were still talking about was still doing miracles. It was in his name and by his authority 
that this man standing before the Sanhedrin with Peter and John had just been healed. Jesus was still at it. Peter's final statement in this third sermon is arguably the most important declaration any human being will ever hear. Let me say that again. Peter's statement here in Acts 4 verse 12 is arguably the most important declaration that any human being will ever hear. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. To a world like ours that worships tolerance, those words are intolerable. Those are fighting words. Those are words determined by God to divide fathers from sons and mothers from daughters and brothers from sisters for the sake of Christ and in the name of Christ. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The next time someone insists in your hearing that there must be many ways to God or that each of us gets to determine his or her own truth, you know where to take them, right? Acts 4.12. It's as clear as clear gets. It's just as clear as Jesus was in John 14.6 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Verses 13 and 14 of Acts 4 are very revealing. It says, now as they observe the, the Sanhedrin, as they observe the confidence of Peter and John, that's kind of an understatement, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Somewhere between the time these men had been arrested and the time that this unplanned court session began, the court officials had learned that these guys were just a couple of fishermen whom some had seen hanging out with Jesus before his death. But they're speaking with such unflinching confidence and they are claiming such unparalleled authority. These Jewish rulers are amazed, but not pleasantly. At this point, the Sanhedrin calls a recess so they can talk amongst themselves. And what they say to each other reminds me very, very much of John chapter 11. Remember, right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, this same Jewish high court called a similar impromptu meeting to figure out what they were going to do about this. They said, what are we doing for this man? Jesus is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. Now let me ask you, whose name were these men concerned about? Theirs. Verse 53 of that same chapter in John says, So from that day on they planned to kill him, Jesus. And then, I, gotta, I, I can only find this hilarious, in the next chapter, John 12 we learn the same chief priests were pondering whether they should also kill Lazarus. Think about the irony 
of killing a man who had just been raised from the dead. You know, maybe if we kill him enough times, he'll stay dead. They don't go that far here in Acts 4, but their strategy is very similar. See, their strategy is all about truth suppression, just like the strategy of this world. In Romans 1 verse 18, Paul presents an indictment against all of sinful mankind. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, men don't merely reject the truth revealed by God. Until God redeems us, we suppress the truth. We do our very best to shove it under a rug so that it can't be seen. And that's what these Jewish rulers tried very hard to do back in John 11, and that's what they're trying to do right here in Acts chapter 4. Here in Acts 4, their truth suppression reaches a shameless level in verses 16 to 18. The court officials say that they cannot deny that a noteworthy miracle has just taken place. And the reason they can't deny it, they'd like to, but the reason they can't deny it is because everybody in Jerusalem knows it. So denying it is off the table. The best they can do is to make sure that these men through whom the man was healed are deprived of any further opportunity to talk about this Jesus in whose name they say the man was healed. So they again call Peter and John before them, they reconvene, and they forbid them to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But you know, the problem with trying to shove the truth under a rug is that it just won't stay there. Peter and John are completely unfazed. Their reply is in verses 19 and 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The, the phrase, you be the judge, I think is the height of sarcasm. These guys were supposed to be rendering judgments in the name of the one true holy and righteous God, but the only name to which they had any devotion at all was their own. They were like the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 who ate the sheep of God instead of feeding them the ones that they had been given to care for. This high court then issues more threats against Peter and John, but they realize they can't publicly punish these men quote, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. That's the first time we learned that he was 40 years old. See, the, their rug simply isn't big enough. So for the moment, they release Peter and John. In verses 23 to 31, there's a marvelous scene change. The Sanhedrin is no longer in session. Peter and John have been released. Now comes the second gathering together that we find in this passage. The gathering together of the saints in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter and John and no doubt the man who had been healed from a life of lamelessness make their way back to the place where the believers had been gathering in Jerusalem. And they report all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And then the saints of the living God lift up their voice as one voice to God. 
The next seven verses, verses 24 to 30, are a prayer. That whole passage is a prayer in two parts, an acknowledgement and a request. The acknowledgement is in verses 24 to 28, and there are three things that the saints acknowledge that they agree with God about here. First, God created all things. They quote Psalm 146, verse 6, saying, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then the second thing that they acknowledge is that God foretold the opposition of the earthly authorities to Jesus and to the people of Jesus. They say, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David thy servant said, and then they quote Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Then finally, they acknowledge that not only had God foretold this gathering together of the powerful people of the earth against Christ, he had foreordained it. Not only had God foretold the opposition, he had foreordained it. They say, for truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, and then look at verse 20, 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Beloved, consider for a moment how very important it is that we agree with God that the opposition that Jesus faced and the opposition that we face as ambassadors of Jesus was long ago foretold and foreordained by God. And consider for a moment how very clear God has been about this. First uh, Peter chapter 4, one of many passages we could go to on this, but listen to these verses, verses 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, if they hate you, it's because they hated me first. It's because they don't know me. They don't know me and they don't know my Father. He even said that the time's going to come when they will kill you believing that they are doing a service to God. My brother mentioned this just before this. John mentioned that, that the people who are the most zealously opposed to Christ in the world are very, very religious people. God foretold and foreordained the opposition. And consider for just a moment that as these believers were praying these things to God, there was no such thing as a mature Christian. These baby believers with one voice were agreeing with God that he, the creator of all things, had foretold everything that they have seen happening 
and that he had foreordained the opposition that they are facing. Wow. We have no excuse for a superficial concept of what God requires of those whom he redeems. The point of all this was to acknowledge that the opposition they were facing now was not fundamentally opposition against them. It was opposition against God and against his Christ, just as Psalm 2 declares, opposition of the very same kind that had been leveled against Jesus by the same people who had opposed him. And all of this was exactly as God said it must be. The last part of the saint's prayer on this day of God's mighty work is a request. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. If there was one thing that these new believers understood with great clarity about their situation and their assignment, it was that they were utterly, continually dependent on God for their success in that assignment. Absolutely dependent. And I also want to mention their example here of praying back to God what God has said in his word. There's no greater encouragement I can give to you brothers and sisters, about how to pray than that. Fill your prayers with agreement with God about what he has said about himself and about you and about his purpose for you. And when you do, you will be aligning your whole construct, your whole worldview, and your way of thinking with that which is actually real. And you will be submitting yourself to the, to the one who's truly sovereign over your life. Let your prayers be filled with agreement with God about what he has made known of himself. Now, God's answer to their request is in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. What had they asked God for? Boldness. And that's what God gave them. Many times I've heard Christians struggle over Jesus' promise to his disciples in John 14, 13, where Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So many Christians have said to me, but I've asked God for things that he didn't do. The, the kicker is the in my name thing, Right? This prayer right here in this passage is precisely the kind of request Jesus was talking about in John 14, the same passage, by the way, in which he promised to send the Holy Spirit after he ascended to his Father so that the Holy Spirit would equip and enable his people to carry on his work on earth. In my name does not mean that we tack those three words at the end of our prayer. That's not what it means. That has never been what it means. I'm not saying it's bad to do that, but that's not what it means. In my name means praying in keeping with who I am and what I came to accomplish. And that's exactly what this prayer in Acts 4 is. It is a prayer that acknowledges and lines up perfectly with who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish through his people. Our master's answer to those prayers, beloved, is always, always, Yes. 
their request for spirit-enabled boldness in proclaiming the word of the cross in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ was mightily granted through the Holy Spirit, who had taken up residence in every one of them and in his church. They prayed for the right things in the right name, and God was delighted to grant their request in a manner that no one could deny. The whole place shook with God's resounding yes. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. The God who had raised Jesus from the dead, the God who had poured out his Holy Spirit on the apostles so that they spoke in languages they had never learned, the God who had performed a mighty miracle of healing that astounded all of Jerusalem, the God who had foretold and foreordained all of the above, the one true God now filled his saints with his spirit, and he shook the place where they were gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ. There's so much here for us to consider that we clearly don't have time to talk about. And especially, I think, in the time of this present darkness that surrounds us. Beloved, we live in a world that has an ever-increasing religious fervor for its opposition to the will and to the ways of the one true God. We live in a world that does all that it does in the name of the creature rather than the creator. A world that considers all that we hold dear to be a, a mortal threat to all that it holds dear. And it is correct in that assessment. The rulers and powers of this world will continue to gather together in the name and for the sake of the creature. And the militancy of their assault against Christ, against God and his, his Christ will not diminish. It will become ever more zealous. And we, the redeemed of Christ, will continue to gather together as this morning in the name and for the sake of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God wants us to know that the outcome of this creation-wide conflict was already settled before we even existed. The gates of hell will soon fall. And when they do, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of the Father. Until that day, we call out to the living God in the name of Jesus, our rock, our refuge, our redeemer, our fortress. And by the power of Jesus' name, we will not be moved. I'll close with one of my favorite verses, Zechariah 14, 19. It speaks of that day that's coming. It says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth, in that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. Dear Father, we welcome and we hasten that glorious day when every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them will bow down to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to whom belong all blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever until that day may all that we say and do 
exalt the only name that is worthy. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we pray these things in his, in his holy name. Amen.